Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit in these spaces, in these moments, that we would be inhabited, O Lord, by your presence. Would the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room and in virtual spaces illumine this word of God to us. And we pray that that same spirit would bring us into the presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for us, who only ever and always is pleased to meet us in grace as we come to him in faith, as the debt has been canceled on the cross. Lord, would we worship you during this time of the reading and the preaching of your scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes you say one thing to say another. And it takes a little bit of rhetorical skill and mojo when what, at least in part, you're really trying to say is staying under the surface. So you're talking in this direction, but then by implication, you're implying either something slightly different or something additional, something more without actually naming it. A recent example that comes to my mind is the mayor of Philadelphia, Joel Embiid, who in a press conference last week, he's also a Philadelphia 76er, and you might know a little bit of the intrigue right now with the Sixers. They have a really good player who actually might not be that good, named Ben Simmons, who's holding out of training camp, big contract dispute. And Embiid has been masterful. Go and check out on YouTube or Twitter his, his interview clips. The Sixers are saying, including Embiid, we really value Ben Simmons as a player, 
We think he's awesome. We want him back on the team. We need him. He's such an important part. He's so great. But then the more that Embiid talks, the more he's also actually saying, oh, and by the way, I am so much more important to this team than Ben Simmons, and Ben Simmons actually is not nearly as good as I am. It is masterful. He's totally Jack Palancing his Billy Crystal right there. It is amazing. And people have also said, if you go and check on Twitter this week, that almost as good as Joel Embiid's press conferences, that is kind of saying one thing to say another, is the speech given in Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, Mark Antony, the funeral oration that Antony is giving about the assassination of Julius Caesar. Let me tell you about this one. So, if you know the play, or if you know the history, Caesar has been assassinated. He was a Roman general on the cusp of becoming emperor, but then you have this guy Brutus leading a conspiracy that assassinates Caesar. And then with this speech, you have Mark Antony, who actually is pro-Caesar still, and is kind of against the conspiracy led by Brutus. But the purpose of that funeral oration on the surface is to say, hey, we just need to keep going. It's too bad that Caesar was killed, but he really wasn't that great of a guy. Let's get on board with Team Brutus and keep going. And when he gives a speech, so brilliant rhetorically, there are a couple of things that he does, including he, he keeps repeating over and over again, Brutus and his cohort. Brutus is an honorable man. Caesar, on the other hand, was ambitious. And that's kind of a bad thing. This is the speech that begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your iPhones. I think it's iPhones. And as the speech goes on, and he keeps saying, Brutus is an honorable man. Caesar is an ambitious. By the end of the oration, you're wondering, is that really the case, or is it the opposite? So, bear with me as I read you some of Shakespeare. Friends, oh, it is, lend me your ears. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. So we're not going to go overboard praising Caesar. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred in their bones. Yeah, we're still dealing with the evils that Caesar did. But then maybe there was a little bit of good that Caesar also perpetrated. But it's been buried with him. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. There it is. And if it were so, it was a grievous fault. If Caesar was ambitious, bad news, grievous, if he was. On the other hand, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. But this is where the tension starts to rise. He, Caesar, was my friend, faithful and just to me. So Caesar actually sounds pretty good. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. Next argument. Caesar hath brought many captives home to Rome. Whose ransoms did the general coffers fill? Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? Hey, when Caesar won a lot of battles, he made everybody else rich. He passed the money on. Is that really what an ambitious man would do? One that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Caesar is the one that's crying, with weeping with those that are weeping. Is that what an ambitious person does? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. Last reason. You all did see that on the Lupercal, a festival, I thrice presented Caesar a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And sure, Brutus is an honorable man. 
Antony says, three times I presented Caesar with a crown. Are we really saying that he was ambitious? And so it's pro-Caesar and not pro-Brutus for that speech. So you have the placid surface level. This is pro-Brutus. This, this is where we're going. This is what the Republic is going to do. But go a little bit deeper, and there is a strong polemic against Brutus. And they mention, I say all of that to say this. I get the same vibe when we go into this passage from the book of Genesis. We're continuing on sermon series, Genesis, then and now for Genesis. And we're in the middle of Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 25, creation day 4, and then midway through creation day 6. So far, we've had the first three days of creation when the heavens and the earth have been created, and now God is in the process of filling all of these things. And on the surface, as we've remarked a couple weeks ago, yes, it might feel like a tired text. We have heard it all before. Is there anything more going on? But the answer is yes. As the author of Genesis is recounting God creating this world, also in the process, this passage is dismantling other worlds and other worldviews with which this story is conversant as creation stories in the ancient Near East. And so for this morning, I invite you to come and swim under the surface with me as we take a deeper look at what's going on here in this passage from Genesis. And in fact, this is a text with teeth. This is a text that in other cultures in the ancient world is identifying gods and monsters, things that you're really scared of, things that exercise all of this control over you. By implication, this passage is saying, they're not God. They're not divine. They're not dangerous. But God, in fact, is supreme. And if in a subtle way this passage dismantles and deconstructs aspects of other worlds and worldviews in that period, what about ours? What's deconstructed here? And as we swim under the surface in this text, we also gain a glimpse of what it truly means to behold a humanity of deep flourishing and of deep freedom. So let's talk in three parts from here. Let's first talk about their gods and monsters as we encounter them in the text here. Then let's talk about some of our gods and monsters. And then third, we're going to talk about how we can treat these gods and monsters, which are not gods and monsters, for our good and in freedom. So their gods and monsters, our gods and monsters, and then how to find some freedom. And like I said earlier, just a moment ago, we are continuing here in Genesis. We've seen so far days one to three of creation. And the symphony of God's creation here in Genesis chapter one continues to build into a crescendo. So far, we've seen the creation of all of these things, of the skies and of the seas, of land and plants. And now God goes about the work of filling them all up. And this passage that I read is teeming with life. All of these creatures in the sea and on land and in the sky are filling all things. But also we take a closer look because there's something more, something additional that's being said. For example, with day four, verses 14 to 19, scholars have scratched their head a little bit. It's a little long, right? And there's a lot of details about the creation of the, the celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars. Why so much detail here? Well, we may not know as modern readers, 
that in the ancient world, these celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, they fascinated ancient peoples. And they were worshipped as divine or semi-divine. The celestial bodies, they were the things that exerted power over the seasons. They exerted power over people's lives. Before you traveled, you'd want to make sure that you're aligning with the stars for fertility, for direction, and for guidance, and for identity. These were the big things that you looked up to that formed you. And scholars, again, will say very intentionally in this passage, in this first paragraph, verses 14 to 19, intentionally, the author of Genesis says, they're not gods. They're not divine. They don't control you. They are not supreme. Take another look at verse 16 of Genesis chapter 1. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. A couple of different things are going on here. There's a competing creation story called the Enuma Elish in this area of the world at that time that also recounts the creation of sun, moon, and stars that were worshipped as celestial bodies. In that account, the order is flipped. It's the stars that get the most, the most attention because they're the really most important celestial body. But the order here is flipped saying sun is created, moon is created, then at the very end of the verse, almost as an afterthought. Oh yeah, and the stars too. And you might wonder, why doesn't it just say sun and moon? Instead, it's the greater light and the lesser light here in verse 16. Were those words available in the ancient language, in the ancient Hebrew? The answer is yes, but people that have studied this passage have said the typical words in Hebrew for sun and moon are similar in other languages in the area, that are used for the sun god and the moon god. And so it seems, saying one thing to say another, lesser known words are used here for the greater light and for the lesser light to very intentionally say, okay, there's a sun and a moon, but it's not what you think. It's not your typical sun god and moon god. It's not your typical stars. And all of this stuff, the celestial bodies, they are part of the created order by God, and that's all. 17 and 18. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. They're part of the created order of things. Yes, they rule the day and the night, but it's God that rules them. And similarly, for the next day, day five, we have these sea creatures and all of these other things going on. And God said that let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Just kind of goes in one ear and out the other for modern audiences. But ancient audiences would have read the verses that I just read and said, there be monsters here with those great sea creatures. Now, when great sea creatures come to your mind, you might think, for example, about a big whale, a white whale, a beluga, or a humpback whale, also a good whale, or a sperm whale. Or you might be thinking about sharks, like the great white shark, or a hammerhead shark. They look really weird, right? Or a sand shark. Or you might be thinking about like a dolphin, or a bottleneck dolphin, or a porpoise. Or you might be thinking about a manatee, or a duck-billed platypus, 
Be that as it may. That was fun. That would not have been in mind for the ancient readers. The great sea monster is Leviathan. If you know a little bit of Bible going into the Old Testament, and you can do a word search for Leviathan. That was the, the legendary sea creature. And I've mentioned before that in this area, the seas and the deeps were terrifying. They were scary. We don't know what to make of it. And why they're terrifying and scary is that there are these great sea monsters that threaten to destroy everything. But the author of Genesis here is saying, they're not really that big of a deal. They're not dangerous to you. Because God created even the great sea monsters, even the things that you're so terrified of. Oh yeah, God created those things. Verse 22. Sorry, 21 rather. God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I said that create at the very beginning, bara, is a really special word. In the Old Testament, it's only God that ever does that kind of creating with that word. Here is only the second time that that creation word is used again. The great sea creatures, Leviathan. Oh yeah, God created that. And God saw that it was good. They're not dangerous. You don't have to be afraid. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. They're here for your protection. They're for your good. Recently, Emily, my wife and I, we finished watching on Amazon Prime Good Omens. A few of you I know have, have seen Good Omens. It's based on a book of the same name, Good Omens, by Neil Gaiman and not Neil Gaiman. I'm forgetting who this I think Ben Simmons. Neil Gaiman and Ben Simmons wrote Good Omens. And in that book and in that show on Amazon, at one point there's this hellhound who's this big, ferocious, nasty beast that's going to chew everything up, so big, so strong, but then without giving too much away, at one point it morphs into just this little, cute, little puppy. And so for most of the show, this really big, bad hellhound is just this really cute puppy. That's kind of like what's going on here. The great sea creature, so ferocious with big teeth and all this crazy, scary stuff. It really is just a little porpoise. Just cute, just cuddly. And you see that in these verses here with those gods and monsters, they're not divine, they're not dangerous, they're not here to crush you, they're not here to co-opt you. They're just things. So you can relax and find freedom as those worlds are deconstructed and dismantled in this passage. Now, what about our world? If we think about our gods and monsters, what are some things in our lives that control us, that drive us, that we worship or that we pseudo-worship, that exercise power over our lives, that drive us in this direction as opposed to driving us in that direction? Things, issues, ideas, people, stuff with which we want to align so we can find our own sense of identity. What are those things? And I admit that these are interpretive choices that I'm making right now. We, we could fill in the blank with any number of different things or issues, but let's talk just briefly about three. Three gods and monsters for us. Money, screens, and self-image. Money, screens, and self-image. These are things that we don't have to be crushed by and don't have to be co-opted by and come to think of it, if we did better in our lives, let's admit it, with things like money and screens and self-image, we would be freer, more fulfilled versions of ourselves. And if you're watching either online or in the room and you're skeptical of spiritual realities, I don't know if this Jesus stuff works for me or not, let your own world be deconstructed a little bit. Let's talk about money. 
So if you're a left-leaning person, you'll say that money is a mechanism of oppression. If you're a right-leaning person, you might say that money is, in, is a mechanism of theft, and it's being taken, and it's being redistributed. But whether you're on the right or on the left, I don't hear a whole lot either way that goes against saying, well, you better be sure to spend a lot, because consume, 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 consume. That's what you need to do. Karl Marx, who actually had some smart things to say about money. I don't subscribe to the whole Marxist program. But at one point, he said, money is God, before whom no other God may exist. Money is the general, self-sufficient value of everything. Hence, it has robbed the whole world, the human world, as well as nature, of its proper worth. Money is the alienated essence of man's labor and life, and this alien essence dominates him as he worships it. Money is this alien essence that dominates you as you worship it. And in what ways are your lives and my life dominated by money? Isn't it too much of the time where we're stuck in this cycle of anxiety and avarice, being so nervous about money, but then being greedy for more of it, and we just go around and around and around? Maybe we feel grumpy. Maybe we don't know what to do with it, but we can't live without it. And it cycles through for us, and it is a source of deep turmoil. But what would it look like if we were neither crushed nor co-opted by money. Wouldn't we then be more free and be better versions of ourselves? We can also talk about screens. And when you think about screens, and I'm, I'm not picking on people that spend a lot of time with screens. I do too, but let's be self-critical of what happens when we spend so much time there. And um, smartphones, mobile devices, tablets, laptops, TVs, all those things, all together, podcasts, whatever it is. Let's have a conversation about this. It, for years, when Emily and I first got married, we said, hey, we take pride in the fact that we don't have a TV, but then one day we realized we watch a ton of TV. We just don't have a TV. We, we watch it on, on all of these other screens. The screens are our new stars, aren't they? They influence us. They mold us. They form us. They draw us in certain directions and draw us away from other directions. We find our sense of identity and belonging and purpose from the stars, from the screens, whether it's entertainment, whether it's media, whether it's social media. Think about how screens shape you. And I mentioned before, the big companies that do a lot with apps and screens, they're behavioral psychologists and scientists that are tasked with making your apps as addictive as possible so that the dopamine hit occurs in just the right way to keep you on the hook for just a little while longer. And it's also no, no accident or no, no coincidence that screens make us angrier. And screens make us more agitated. A philosopher at Princeton named Peter Singer, I do not subscribe to his whole program. We're going to come back to him next week. But he said this about social media, and I agree. Indeed, the more we've learned about behavior on social media, the more apparent it has become that the mirror is distorted, or rather, that it distorts us. How are screens functioning as your stars, or as my stars? And I'm not trying to sound just like this grumpy old man, cranky, screens get off my lawn type of thing, but I am saying we should probably, even as a community of faith, have more conversations in that direction. I think we would agree that if screens were less dominant in our lives, our lives, number one, would look different, right? And how many of us would say our lives would look different but much worse because screens are making our lives so much better right now? Probably would go in the other direction. 
And then also self-image or identity generation or reputation, caring about those things so much too. Here's a paradox for you. Here in the late modern West, it's been observed that on one hand, we are the most free to self-define and self-identify than any other culture in the history of the world. We're most free, but then also at the same time, we're most fragile. Not a coincidence that those two things are go together. And I see a vicious cycle going on culturally right now. When we're encouraged, hey, be yourself, be your own person, don't let anybody tell you anything about your identity, anything about who you are, generate it all from within. You've got this. But then on the other hand, there are people that, that might disagree with you or say mean things about you, and that's really going to hurt you, and you're really, really fragile, and I'm really, really sorry about that. We just want you to try harder to keep constructing, and at least as I read things, we're less comfortable telling people to be resilient because we're worried that that's just going to make them feel more guilty. So it's all sorry, sorry, sorry with no resiliency, which is actually training people just to become more traumatized. And then other people will say, okay, we're going to get the bad people to shut up. So there's some groups of people that are telling the other groups of people to shut up and we don't want you to talk anymore, which the other groups of people are becoming angrier and nastier and meaner and are actually turning up the volume saying really mean and nasty things that come back to the people that are already fragile, and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And then it's a Fred Ward moment, like best in show, when we're just sitting around saying, what happened? Right? The church is called to be a gadfly in a moment like this. And not triumphantly or belligerently, but say, hey, what if the system is broken? What if this just doesn't work? What if the emperor has no clothes? What if everything that we're being told about how to form the self actually doesn't deliver on its promises? Or here's this philosophy major in college, and one of the common philosophy tropes, it may have developed since I was in school, it's been a couple of years now, but at least back then, I was studying mostly Western philosophy, but it was observed that when you think about ethical systems in the West versus ethical systems in the East, ethical systems in the West are about right and wrong. More typically, and I realize that these are very, very broad stereotypes, more typically in the East, it's not right and wrong as much as honor and shame. So you have right and wrong cultures, and then you have honor and shame cultures. And depending on which one you are, you'll get different ethical answers. Say you uncover, say you're a grown adult, and you uncover with your mom or your dad that they're committing fraud. If you're in a right and wrong system, do you report that fraud? Yes, because it's wrong. If you're in an honor-shame system, do you report that fraud? No, because it would bring shame upon your family. I do sense, and you know, one's not better than the other. They both have pros and cons. I feel like we're moving Eastern specifically in this way. We're losing face, losing reputation. Other people, the right people, thinking anything badly about us kills us, destroys us. We can't handle it anymore. If people don't think that I am all that, and different people on the cultural spectrum are going to fill in all that in different ways. But we all have in our minds the jury of our peers, even if it's different from one another, and we'll think, I need these people to think that I am the right kind of person. Those are our stars. Let's talk about these things as well. But whether ancient gods and monsters or current gods and monsters, how can we find more freedom from these things? How can we use them for our good? 
and say, you're not divine and you're not dangerous to me. Eric mentioned we're in a season here at Liberty Collingswood, the Represence Initiative, where this is a two-year program when we are reconvening, we are regathering, we are re-strengthening, we are relaunching our church in such a way that we're going to double down on seeking God's presence in our lives. We're going to double down on being present with one another as we're able. We're going to double down on being present in our communities. Liberty Collingswood had a table at the Collingswood Book Festival yesterday. It was great. And let's agree that these gods and monsters, whether money or screens or self-image, block presence. Right? They block our experience and cultivation of the presence of God in our lives. They block our ability to be present with one another. They block our mission. And I've said before, Christian mission is more than this, but at the same time, we, if you identify as a Christian, are called to live transparently, not pridefully, not faking it, but showing forth that these gods and monsters that we're tempted to worship, they are nothing to us. They're only things that we use for our good, and here is a way to live as human beings with a deeper sense of freedom and flourishing. How do we find freedom from these gods? I'll just make a couple of suggestions. We're wrapping up here. Can't talk more. Put them in their place. Whether it's money or screens or self-image, put them in their place. That's what God is doing throughout Genesis chapter 1, including here at the end. And God said, let the earth, verse 25, bring forth living creatures according to its kind, livestock, creeping things, beasts according to kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps over and over again according to their kinds. And so seek the grace of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to give yourself some spiritual self-talk to point your finger at those gods and monsters and say, you are not the boss of me. You are not my ruler. You are not my star. You are not my sun. You are not my moon. I'm going to be ruled by Jesus because his rule doesn't dominate me in a way that tears me down, but it builds me up. And seek freedom in being a child of God, which is by grace. In Jesus, if you believe in him, you are graciously kept. And Paul even uses occasionally economic images to say how rich you are in Jesus, including here. You'll hear on Sunday morning sometimes when we talk about the offering. Paul tells the Corinthian church, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus died and rose again, paid the penalty for your sin and my sin on the cross, conquered sin and death and the devil, who shares for anybody that comes to him by faith the new life and new kingdom of God by way of forgiveness and renovation, all the way to a new heavens and new earth where the other gods and monsters will be done away with for all time. This Jesus says also, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If money is your God and your monster, ask for help. I don't have enough. I need budgeting help. Ask for accountability. I don't know if I have enough or not. I need help with that. But also, I obsess so much. I am so anxious. It is ruling me. One of the practices of presence that we're going to do in our small groups this year, feasting and fasting. How do we find better rhythms when it comes to screens? And in Jesus, if you know him and are known by him, 
that means that your identity is not built from the ground up, self-generated from what you're feeling on a given day. It comes down graciously on high and gives you a durable image, self-image upon which to build. We're all created in the image of God, and that's what Jesus is at work also to renew. We're going to talk more about that next week, the image of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>